there at Manly Beach. It's uh, 5.26 p.m. Sunday afternoon here and a few hours ago on my long walkabout I saw that Donald Trump has been reinstated to Twitter. So I think without a doubt Twitter is going to be a much more interesting place with Donald Trump in it. And uh, even Richard Spencer who's been just overwhelmingly critical about Trump for the past three years. He's starting to sympathize with Donald Trump again because the GOP establishment has turned so decisively against Trump. But if you're going to get Richard's latest insights, I must warn you, the price for a monthly subscription to his Substack, which is jam-packed with content, is now $9. Except for you, Kurt. I actually did, uh, just to let you guys know, I actually did increase the monthly rate to $9. Um, I, I thought 6 was good for a while, um, but and we have gotten a, uh, a... I'm really happy with Substack. I kind of wanted to go a little low um, because I wasn't... A couple of things. I thought that there was at least a chance that I would get kicked off because, you know, I'm on Twitter. I don't think I'm going to get kicked off Twitter. 99% sure. I was kicked off YouTube for no good reason. So, yeah, the smarter you are, the better the chances are that you'll learn to play within the rules. So Richard Spencer, whatever your criticisms of him, he's a pretty smart guy. He's uh, learning to color between the lines, play within the rules. Um, and so I was just a little bit tentative because I had um, heard the kind of core of this group that that it's growing out of um, during 2020 and for in 2021 we, we just kind of had a kind of like secret substack you could say and we it was people who I had their email address we kept it there I didn't do any promotion um, because I we were still just kind of coming out of that era of you know the old right and blah 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 and getting deplatformed everywhere so yeah key part of Richard Spencer's evolution is he just got tired of getting kicked out of everywhere and kicked off of everything you get tired when you're living on the margins. You want mainstream respectability once again. I think I've kind of been able to... So, so Richard's teaching a new class about Plato's allegory of the cave. And uh, you can think of his own journey coming out of the cave back into the sunlight of mainstream respectability. Right? People want to be liked. Right? It's a very hard thing to live on the margins day in, day out can be edgy and exciting for a brief period, but it really starts to wear on you. I that. And I don't think... First off, I'm not doing anything worthy of being um, deplatformed, and then A, and then B, I generally do think... I genuinely and generally do think that Substack is um, dedicated to free speech, you know, obviously, within reason. And um, really what I'm focusing on now is just very different. So I, I think it's all going to work out. And um, Anyway, it was $9 earlier. Yeah, and it's a lot easier to work out when you play within the rules, when you say what is socially acceptable, when you regain respectability, all right? You got in at six, Ooh, you got a bargain, but um, I won't raise it, I will say that, barring by more style hyperinflation, you know, at which point it will be raised $10 every day. Um, I, uh, I will not raise that for a while. I think that's just a good kind of solid price. So this is a Richard Spencer Substack group call on uh, November 17. You can release the Spencer Nutraceutical by Alex Jones. I could just sell you guys sugar pills, yes. 
So uh, Rich has got a new essay up, Making the Case for Banning Alex Jones. He says, uh, serial liar, liar like Alex Jones just so degrades the public discourse that uh, we're better off having Alex Jones banned from social media. I've been ambivalent about Alex Jones. It didn't bother me when big social media companies banned him. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not as sure as Richard Spencer that it's a good thing. I'm just neutral on it. I mean, it's, it is kind of like this horrifying preserve perverse incentive where I'm trying to sell you guys like discussion courses on the Spock Zarathustra. And then if I were selling you guys dick pills, like we would be making hundreds of thousands. It's pretty depressing. It's uh, only depressing if you have a misguided view of human nature. And if you have a realistic understanding of yourself and of other people, it's not so depressing. <laughs> but I think I also have a different than um, Alex Jones does, but hopefully, we'll see. Um, generally speaking, I, I feel this kind of weird, um, uh, this, this weird feeling right now of almost being sympathetic towards Trump again. Right, so when everyone else on the right-wing side is against Trump, like when the right-wing news media is turned against Trump in addition to the mainstream media, where Trump is just getting kicked and denied and degraded and debased by everyone, then Richard the Contrarian is feeling a strange new respect for Donald Trump. Because he is so hated by the establishment. And so I, I almost have this, the Republican establishment, the, conserv the true conservatives, the cucks. And I almost have this Pavlovian response to actually support him when he's being attacked by these people, or dismissed or ignored, and so on. Um, but he's, he is in pretty much the exact place where he was in 2015, which is basically being dismissed and ignored by the mainstream the conservative establishment, including Fox News, and um, being denounced, you know, in some quarters, and yet kind of sticking to his guns and doing it. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I've hated Trump for a while, but I kind of have a certain sympathy for him when he's in this position. It's, it's a weird feeling, to be honest. It's not so weird, uh, Richard. Um, but as I said, I mean... It's not such a weird feeling, Richard. You're a contrarian, right? Uh, no worries, mate. We, we understand that you're not going to come out with the, the same perspective as everyone else. So I think uh, not so strange why you're suddenly sympathetic to Trump. I just based on this, and I put up a 45-minute uh, monologue that I did that you guys can listen to um, you know, at the time, but... I, I do think it's a it's a very different time to 2015, because in 2015 he was able to define himself so boldly with the fill the wall and you know Mexicans are rapists. I mean, there was just this craziness right out at the gate of his campaign in 2015, and I just found his speech the other night just so remarkable for how boring it was. It was just a mainstream Republican speech with a few you know, hot side items thrown into the mix, like we're going to execute drug dealers or something. But even though I do imagine that that would... Yeah, does, uh, does, does Trump have the energy, the enthusiasm, the, the joy to, to run again? That's not evident. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to run for president. Generate a stir among his base. It, it just doesn't have the kind of uh, central mobilizing quality of, of build the wall and the Mexicans are rapists and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I guess you can tell I just have a lot of ambivalence about um, where things are at the moment. But my general thesis is that the Trump campaign has always been this kind of upside down campaign, 
and that it's always relied on craziness. And absent that Dionysian quality, all your like all Trump is left with nothing, and the GOP is basically left. Okay, so when the left controls the cultural means of production, and the left controls almost all of our institutions, revolt against an enemy who seems to control everything, right? That's going to seem crazy. Right? You're not going to necessarily do that coolly, calmly, rationally, and moderately. Right? That kind of revolution is going to contain a considerable element of the crazy. With boring candidates and policies that are just clearly unpopular. You know, the GOP is left with, we won't cancel $10,000 of your student loans. And we... No, the main argument for voting for the GOP is to lock criminals up, to be tougher on criminals, lock them away, thereby reducing crime rates. Second main argument for voting for the GOP is that we're going to enforce border law, we're going to restrict immigration, both legal and illegal, as Donald Trump very successfully did by the 2020. So those are the first two primary reasons for voting for the GOP, and three is to resist uh, the war of uh, woke culture. So there are three main reasons for voting GOP. We'll ban abortion, and we will offer tax cuts and stuff like that. That's what they're left with. And with Trump, you know, you he brings to the party the craziness of build the wall, the alt-right, um, uh, white nationalism, and then all of this morphing into COVID conspiracies and QAnon and so on. No. With Trump, you get a lot of real talk, right? That, that's the advantage with Trump, right? You get some real talk. You get you get a level of honesty that is you know, pretty rare among politicians. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, I mean, I, I guess, like, one of the things, it would never fly. I think it's the, the ship's already sailed kind of thing. But, um, I, I mean, you could, like, uh, I don't know, anybody that's on antidepressants or whatever, you're just like, okay, well... Like, we just, you can't breathe, but I don't know, short of forcing some... I mean, really, like, that's kind of what it implies. But it doesn't ultimately solve the issue. The issue is that, like, it's too easy to be alive. Yeah. You know? And also, the the anti... I mean, I know you were joking when you said sterilize everyone in antidepressants, but also the issue of just, like, overdiagnosis and just ramp... You know, you live in the modern world, and it kind of makes you unhappy. And the fact that um, one of the things is that depressed people... Well, if we lived in a more traditional society... I suspect that uh, people would not be as unhappy. And I think a lot of the unhappiness, disconnection, mental illness is a result of people being disconnected from family, normal human connection, the community, which is something that's a lot easier to do when you don't have this vast array of civil rights laws you know, restricting basic freedoms. Like other people depressed kind of, you know, being around themselves. Yes. You never yeah. really know. Yeah, I don't know if there are any answers to this. I mean, I think it's a real thing. and um, But I don't know. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've kind of made this shift. I mean, I've, um, you know, Mark Brahman and I... Look, the main reason Richard made this shift is because he wants, you know, respectability. He's tired of being hated. But here he explains why he's not doing shows with Ed Dutton anymore. And instead, he's doing shows with Mark Brahman. Now, I miss Ed Dutton. I prefer that realist approach. I don't get any benefit from Mark Brahman. But uh, doing shows with Mark Brahman is essentially escape into a fantasy world. So some people like Game of Thrones, right? Some people like fantasy entertainment. Uh, Richard likes fantasy, right? He likes fantasies that he and Mark create. Uh, I don't get anything from him. I don't see the benefit. 
of retreating to this you know, fantastical, unreal, imaginary world that so entrances Richard and uh, Mark Brahman. Been friends for a long time. Um, ever since he, you know, he I published his first articles at Radix Journal, like you know, Radix is alive again. But I published it um, a while ago, and um, more than a decade. And I do think that like what we're working on does offer solutions to things. And I, I do think the kind of like HBD stuff. And- so Richard says that what he and Mark are working on offers solutions. He's talking about Apolloism. So you know, what exactly does Apolloism offer? It's, you know, it's just you know, a watered-down, more socially acceptable form of uh, Nazi ideology. And seriously, what, uh, what problems does Apolloism answer? Like, realism better equips people for life because you are placing them in reality. You're describing reality to them, so... Yeah, less likely to be disconnected from reality. It, 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 it's important, but it does become rather depressing, doesn't it? It only becomes depressing if you are out of touch with reality, the reality inside you or the reality outside of you. But reality is not inherently depressing. Like, know the truth, the truth will set you free. Like, reality is the beginning of wisdom. Reality is the beginning of effectiveness. Like, getting in touch with reality means becoming humble, right? You gain an appropriate understanding of where you stand vis-a-vis other people, right? But uh, I don't think Richard wants to stay in reality. He wants to live in a world of, of fantasy. Mark Rahman gives him this opportunity. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not particularly, you know, happy reading this. This is not like bedtime material. No. Just... Okay, so material can be awesome and great and important. It's not necessarily the stuff you want to read before you go to bed, right? So just because you don't want to read it before you go to bed doesn't mean that it's not important. No overarching cultural solution that we can actually offer. Well, how about just uh, becoming more exact and more precise about the nature of the truth, nature of reality, right? R- rather than you know, trying to offer these grand, you know, top-down Germanic theories. Uh, Richard's very much kind of in the in the vein of German philosophy, so French and German thinkers, uh, they loved grand theories, right? They loved to propound grand theories. And they're pretty weak on evidence and empiricism. Now, in the Anglo tradition, all right, the Anglo tradition's much more empiricist, right? So Anglo scholars will come up with a bunch of empirical findings then tentatively suggest a very modest theory. So French and German intellectuals love grand theories, but uh, these grand theories tend to be you know, quite disconnected from reality, and they're not particularly interested in providing the empirical support for their grand theories. And uh, Richard sounds very much like the, these continental philosophers as opposed to the Anglos. So he yeah. just becomes like dwelling on you know, this inevitable decline of the population or something. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's just... It kind of just, I, I just want to move away from that. Maybe yeah. universal designer babies will be the solution yeah. where yeah. everyone is want, just genetic engineered out of yeah. it. If you want a genetic white girl, watch the movie Danica. What's the movie? <laughs> I never saw it. Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> the original Rand black Paul girl actually, film. <laughs> Rand Paul got into a hot water. I remember he plagiarized the Wikipedia article for Gattaca for his book. <laughs> just like, wow. He was like, guys, we... Yeah, just never have any interest in listening to politicians speak or reading what they have to say. 
it's such a low level of discourse that they offer. You can't have too much socialism. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be fucking bad. All right, let's just stop on that socialism. Yeah, uh, <laughs> totally lame. <laughs> Whoever wrote that book for him was probably Jack Hunter, um, actually, who used to write for Talkies Magazine. Um, anyway, um, I'm almost sure he did it. But like, you plagiarize Wikipedia, really? It's cut and paste from the internet. <laughs> no one will notice. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite Rand Paul book? What's your favorite Ron DeSantis book? What's your favorite Donald Trump book? Come on, man. Give me a break. But anyway, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I just think all this kind of winding about the demographic decline of the white race or something. I mean, we got to understand, like, why this is happening. Like, why is Okay, Richard doesn't want to talk about it because it's socially unacceptable. We'll isolate him and uh, increase the problems that he has to face. So... It's fine, right? You don't have to be a martyr, right? There's no need to say you know, things that uh, come with, you know, a huge social price, but to then intellectualize the issue and say, oh, you know, I want to move towards cultural solutions, therefore I'm embracing Apolloism instead of realism is a bit hard to take. Problem, and how can we reasonably solve this? Right, like you're saying it's a spiritual problem first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want to... Uh, I keep... So, spiritual, that can mean many different things. And there are effective vehicles for you know, a spiritual connection. But there are also a whole bunch of, you know, nonsense that just cloak themselves as spiritual. So how can you tell the difference between the real thing and the nonsense? By the fruits, right? By the behavior of people who embrace, you know, these varying forms of spirituality. Please prefaces of, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen, but, and then I just say what I'm about to say. So I had this conversation last night with um, someone who's a member of this group, actually. I'm... So do you ever find yourself prefacing your conversations by saying, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen? I wager that if you need to preface your conversations by saying, I don't want to be a divisive drama queen, it may indicate that you have something of a compulsion towards being a divisive drama queen her for oh god more than a decade as well and we're both kind of on the same boat like you know i remember uh, she was there at the making club stuff she's been doing a number of amarants i probably i don't know how many amarants i went to probably half a dozen or um, you know I, I think we're both kind of like she was talking to me about it last night she was like oh amarants this weekend i'm so out of the loop but um it's just all the same stuff. You know, like, they're just saying the same thing over and over again for decades. And it's all this just kind of doom and gloom the white race. Okay, so there are forms of social science that are replicable, right? There's certain basic truths that uh, you may see in more and more facets of life, such as the predictive value of IQ scores, right? And uh, it's not as exciting as having new, you know, philosophical and spiritual insights for, for which you know, there's no necessary empirical evidence. Uh, so often the, the, the tried and true and the boring is the, the most true and the most profound. The traditional American majority doesn't have a chance. It's just this endless doom and gloom. And it, on one level, you don't analyze the situation and really understand what's happening. And on another level, there's just, you're it's like trying to drain the ocean of the or something. It's just... The way they present the problem, there's just no real hope. I suppose the Great Ride of Hope project definitely fell through because they mentioned that. 
a while ago, and that seemed like a little bit of... Who, they mentioned that again? Moved to Idaho? Yes. Yes. That's different than... I doubt Jared would sign off on that, actually. That's actually different than... That's actually different than Greater Idaho. So, backstory to this is uh, Richard feels hurt that uh, Jared Taylor doesn't want him at Amaran events, that uh, Jared Taylor doesn't want him to speak for him because uh, Richard embraced Nazism. With the hail our people, you know, the Sikh Heil and the, or the, the Nazi talk that Richard embraced. So, therefore, Richard was you know, pushed away by Jared. And that's that's large part of the story that Richard's not talking about here. Greater Idaho is basically the idea of all of Oregon outside of like Portland and surrounding areas joining Idaho. And moving to Idaho is part of the Northwest imperative where white nationalists move to the Pacific Northwest area, hope for, and have the system collapse or win a war against the US and they create a white nationalist for Okay, so that's absurd. I'm thinking that uh uh, these nationalists are going to move to the northwest and then win a war against America, or the whole system's going to collapse and they're going to take over. Right, talk about living in fantasy land. Cuba, that's at odds with the U.S. Two different guys, things. Um, give me a first. I, I don't. Well, I don't know if it would involve. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you support it. I know. I, I know you're representing. I'm not going to shoot the messenger here, but guys, give me a fucking break. This, you know, northwest imperial. I mean, I guess it's ironic that I'm saying this because I have actually done. <laughs> I actually. Yeah. So Richard, for years, you know, was most famous for calling for an ethnostate, right? For calling for the, the creation of this exact sort of thing. Now he's disavowing. And, you know, I'm making fun of him. Um, guys, it's just not happening, and we don't want that to happen. And like a bunch of white nationalists in Montana taking on the government yeah like that is a one-way ticket to death yeah i don't i don't know the details of it conflicting with the current government and like seceding from the any of that stuff maybe See, do you know what that. they do do you know what they do the, the assumption that they have which is just wrong the same assumption that russians have which is that america slash nato slash the west is gay and That's, oh my yeah. god they have a they have a black guy in charge yeah rich is making a good point here but uh there's a lot of dismissal on parts of the distant right that uh America and NATO are just gay, therefore not formidable, They're just uh, doomed to decadence and decline. And uh, American power, like Chinese power, Russian power, is relative compared to other nations and compared to the other major powers. The United States of America is in fantastic shape to be even more dominant in the years ahead than it is now. Military and they have some homosexual in the Marine Corps, so we could just, you know, we could just go out there with our shotguns, baseball bats, and kick their ass right No, yeah, I don't you can't. You can't. I mean, I don't <laughs> Even though I obviously you know still sympathize with with them, and of course I guess all of us have our sympathies with them, but it's like yeah, but Ed, that is quite sad how they're on this fringe of Russia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, but to, to go back to like the the, the all, all the stuff. I mean, it's like if we're just lamenting demographics, and you know, I'm not against like seriously talking about demographics or something, but if we're just lamenting demographics, like that's going to be a real soft story. Nobody is endorsing just lamenting demographics, but there are more sophisticated and accurate ways of understanding demographics, right? The, the white percentage of the population in the United States is vastly underestimated by U.S. Census Bureau methods. So if that's your thing, if that's something you're really interested in, then you should probably become more sophisticated and understand what's really going on. So the way the U.S. Census Bureau works is that if people identify as part 
Asian or part black or part Latino, all right, they're counted in the U.S. Census as wholly that, right? So if someone's one sixteenth black or one sixteenth Asian or one sixteenth Latino, and they put down the U.S. Census Bureau that they're you know part Asian and part white, the U.S. Census Bureau counts them as one hundred percent Asian. So the white percentage of the population is dramatically undercounted by U.S. Census Bureau figures. And the non-white section is dramatically overcounted, and those Asians, Blacks, and Latinos who live in the United States, due to the overwhelming nature of America still being white, are very likely to marry someone white and therefore have white children. There's just like there are really serious problems out there, and if you want to make yourself feel bad, you can do that pretty easily with just talking about Democrats. And you know, I know this might. Yeah, if you talk about them in an ignorant way. I notice that many people in distant spheres just want to embrace the suck. They just want to embrace how bad everything is, how there's absolutely no hope, because I think it lets them off the hook for responsibility for, for doing anything with their lives.、Uh, it just kind of gives them permission to be vile and beastly and disgusting because it's all hopeless. Not almost like cowardly or something, but you know, if something is that bad, like you, you kind of have to move off it. And just okay, if there there is grim news, right? Maybe there are just other things in life that you should be focusing on, not just on the grim news, right? You can face reality and also have room in your life for things that are positive and beautiful and true and good, and things that are uplift you rather than things that、uh, drag you down. So you can judge. You know, what you do by its effect on you—is it having a good effect on you? Is it making you happier, more effective?、Right? Is it making you a better person? Is it making you more sober or less sober? Endlessly talking, like I, I don't even—I don't know how much they even do black crime anymore. But like, just endlessly publishing articles about how like white white America is being demeaned or something—it just gets depressing and old. And just I don't know—it's just you're living in a graveyard. And I, it's just not. I don't know. I, 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 when I was a lot younger, I, and I sometimes get into this where I like judge other people for not going through what I've gone through. But, you know, even when they're younger than I am, it's like you should be up to speed with me. Like, but, but at the same time, like I remember, like you know, I don't know, like twenty. I forgot my first day I read. You know, two, I think it might have even been two thousand and eight when I was editing Talkies Magazine or whatever. And it was like, ah,、oh, you know, this is so edgy. You know, it's like、oh, everything is taboo. We're just talking about so like badass. After a while, when they talk about the same thing over and over, it's just not that badass anymore. It's just endless whining about the pretty obvious problems that everyone agrees on. And I do think it's kind of—I don't know—it's just static. I think it's almost unhealthy. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So this is this is the、uh, community that Richard's essentially been exiled from. So maybe、oh, guys. maybe you should、uh, provide、uh, that I, context. I He's not a big fan of Lauren Loma. Okay, I got to fast forward here. I lost my place. Two different guys, just、so、seconds. Briefly talking about demographics or something, but we're just lamenting demographics. Like that's going to be a real soft story. 
because there's just like there are really serious problems out there and if you want to make yourself feel bad you can do that pretty easily with just talking about the threat and you know i know this might sound almost like cowardly or something but you know if something is that bad like you, you kind of have to move off it and just endlessly talking well maybe you move off it as your primary focus doesn't mean you need to ignore it like i, I don't even i don't know how much they even do black crime anymore but like just endlessly publishing articles about how like white white america is being demeaned or something it just gets depressing and old and just i don't know it's just you're living in a graveyard and I, it's just not, I don't know. I, I, I... Look, all group identities are built in significant part by victimhood. We're being screwed over, we're being oppressed, we've been demeaned, we've been cheated, we've been raped, we've been murdered, right? That's a large part of, of group identity. Now, it shouldn't be 100% of your group identity, but that is a large part of the nature of group identity, be it Jewish, black, Christian, whatever. I was a lot younger, I, and I sometimes get into this where I like judge other people for not going through what I've gone through. But you know, even when they're younger than I am, it's like you should be up to speed with me. Like, but but at the same time, like I remember, like you know, I don't know, like twenty. I forgot my first Amrit. You know, two, I think it might have been even in two thousand and eight when I was editing Talkies Magazine or whatever. And it was like, ah, oh, you know, this is so edgy. You know, it's like oh, everything is taboo. We're just talking about so like that. I had that sort of experience when I've been going to Orthodox synagogues for a long time, and then I went to a conservative synagogue where you could openly talk about uh, historical criticism, biblical criticism, the historicity of the Exodus, and I thought, oh, this is so edgy, this is so cool, free speech, free scholarly inquiry. I was going to the library minion at at Beth Am. We had much of the intelligentsia of conservative Judaism in Los Angeles, so I really enjoyed that for a few weeks, but I ended up missing the connection and, and the bonds that come with traditional Judaism. Okay. Okay, so here is your arm saying that uh, there's not an inherent connection between democracy and conservatism. Kind of the, the relational dimension is above that. So I, I wonder what, um, you know, because essentially at this point in, in kind of our political history, politics is almost synonymous with democracy. I mean, what what position does democracy hold here? Because democracy essentially uh, is uh, downstream from this perspective of, okay, we have the individual consent, autonomy is the the, the primacy, so they become the the vehicle of of kind of... um, political voice um i I wonder how that plays into 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 your worldview to begin with conservatives don't you know conservatives are not are not necessarily democrats um that is such an important point all right conservatism is not necessarily democratic conservatives are not necessarily small d democrats how would 40 answer her final question which writer you value whom no one has ever heard of uh stephen turner Right, the the philosopher of the social sciences. Right, I think that that would be my question. Take the fiction; it is good for the nefesh. Yeah, sometimes, all right. Sometimes some fiction is good for the for the nefesh. Right. So, what's good for the nefesh is a very important question. Uh, not the only question. Right. There's time to to deal into harsh reality. But this is this is really important that Yoram Mazzoni is making point point here that. Uh, Conservatives are not necessarily small-D Democrats. There are more important values than democracy and human rights. I had an obsession with 
human rights, natural rights, uh, democracy, process, parliament, government by discussion, right? These are liberal obsessions. These are not conservative obsessions. Conservative obsessions are heritage and people. The, the, uh, the, the tradition that I'm writing about in this book uh, is, uh, is, is one that uh, developed out of, uh, out of monarchy. And this is Yoram Hazoni's book, What is There to Conserve? Out of British monarchy. And uh, the, the, the English monarchy was, uh, for a very, very long time, uh, somewhat different from, uh, from, you know, from French or, or, or German monarchs. Uh, in, in, in the, uh, the English, the traditional English constitution, uh, had a place for, uh, for for people other than the king in, in decision making. So, if we take um, "In Praise of the Laws of England" by John Fortescue, which was written around 1470, uh, we, we see that his his argument is that the people of England are, are better off because uh, because the, uh, the, the the parliament, the, the bicameral legislature, is responsible for laws and is responsible for uh, for taxation, and the king can't simply do whatever he wants. And uh, out of this structure of, uh, of a tradition of, uh, of power sharing between between the king and his subjects, uh, you, you get the gradual development of uh, of the American Constitution, which in its uh, in its early version was very very similar to the English Constitution. And uh, none of the people none of the people involved in, in drafting any of these constitutions called them democracy at that time. Uh, but still, uh, Fortescue claims that his that among the advantages of the English Constitution is that the people are freer than they are in other countries. Right, you can have a lot more freedom sometimes in an authoritarian regime that's not democratic than in a democracy, right? Democracy and liberal human rights are often at odds, right? A liberal society is not necessarily a democratic society. So in a liberal society, people have inalienable rights, which puts considerable limits to democracy. So often the more democracy you have, the fewer rights you have. The more rights you have, less democracy you have. And so there, there are things that are more important than processes, such as the preservation, safety, and prosperity of your people. When he says free, he's obviously not talking about you know what modern liberals mean when they say free. But uh, but he gives examples. He says for you know for example, um, the king cannot uh, enter the house of an English uh, an English farmer without his permission, and he certainly can't take things from the English farmer without his permission, or at least without a law from from, from the legislature. Uh, so and uh, uh, and Fortescue associates these kinds of rights with uh, with freedom. He says says that that uh, the, the, the the reason that the English people uh, flourish. Um, Financially, and the reason that they eat better than in other countries is uh, is because of the sanctity of property and because of right. So, if you're struggling to eat, right? If you're struggling to survive, you're struggling with violent crime. Then democratic processes, the finer points of you know parliamentary discussions and uh, political parties is probably not a top priority. People want results. Sometimes democracy delivers the best results, sometimes liberalism delivers the best results, but liberalism always needs something plus, right? Liberalism's never enough for society. You need liberalism plus nationalism or liberalism plus socialism, right? Liberalism always needs something plus. This is a point Ross Douthat made in a column a couple of months ago. Constitution that protects their property. So all of these things exist already in, uh, in the 1400s in England, uh, but I don't think anybody would have called it a democracy. So I, 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 think, I think that that if you ask, you know, how does how does a conservative uh, how does a conservative in this tradition view democracy? I think that, that, uh, uh, that the, the, the question is always uh, does it improve things or does it make things worse? Exactly. 
does it improve things or does it make things worse for your people, for a particular people at a particular time and place? Sometimes democracy for your particular people at a particular time and place will make things better. At other times, a monarchy will work better. At other times, a tenocracy will work better. Uh, Other times, you'll be better off ruled by by priests. Uh, Other times, you'll be better off in an authoritarian regime. What makes things better for your people? That's the conservative concern. And uh, the the, the democratization of, uh, of the American Republic... You know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think that the American Republic was doing badly uh, before the before the two world wars. And you know, if we're going to talk about uh, where things go wrong, I'm not sure that things go wrong because of the fact that there's a uh, uh, extended suffrage in the United States. But we can, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah, I think it's a. Uh, I think that the, the issue that I see with um, with democracy is that it, it brings in. Essentially, you could also say that it it becomes ruled by media because you know where, where does the the informed citizen get their their information? To be- no, democracy has many problems, but it's not ruled by media. Right? People did not evolve to be gullible. Right? The media doesn't you know, change a lot of minds. Right? There are no states where there's rule by media. Right? There's just no empirical foundation for that sort of observation. That's silly. To be so informed to actually make a, a decision on a political level. Um, and then, you know, that there's competing interests there. And it also brings in... Um, it turns politics into the matter of everyday life. Like there is a certain freedom from politics that you have in, in alternative systems that I think is, is quite underrated. Um, in the sense that uh, now it's, it's become it's become a complete obsession, and it's, it's become synonymous to religion. Like the, the moment the religion you know left through the door, politics entered through the window, and now this is this is essentially the, the animating spirit for so much tribalism for, for all of this. So um, I mean, I think that's uh, <laughs> people might, might argue with me that you know it's a it's a price worth paying, but it, it might also not be. Well, I look. I, I... I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think it's very easy and appropriate to look at what there is now and say, you know, what there is now is really terrible. Uh, the reason I say this is because what there is now really is terrible. Because, I mean, we, we, we are watching the, uh, the disintegration of, um, of American society and the American nation. And- right. So the, the disintegration or the growth or strengthening of a society, that, that's more important than... Uh, democracy sometimes all right so so beautiful here in manly i've walked 13 miles today I'm pretty tired maybe not as sharp as i was at uh, 6 a.m now that it's 609 p.m i found some protein yogurt at a uh, local call store okay calls is like kmart so i had a protein yogurt and two mandarins to fortify me had uh, five protein bars for lunch and such a gorgeous day. I've just been chewing up the miles here in Manly. We're watching a very similar thing happen, happen in the UK. And it's, it's not at all clear that, you know, that, that having uh, moved to all freedom all the time is the only, the, the only value that's emphasized to people. Right, yeah. More freedom. More and more freedom. And it's not necessarily a good thing. Societies. It's not at all clear that they can that they can survive. I mean, I, I just don't know that many people who have, have a great deal of confidence that the United States is going to exist for five years from now. And now I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than you are, and uh, probably than many of the listeners. So I can uh, I, I can remember a time in, in which it, it didn't seem like the United States was on, on, on the verge of disintegrating. And so, you know, my my uh, my view of citizens voting and, and, and media striving to influence them is somewhat different because um, because when I was growing up in in New Jersey. I was born in Israel, but I grew up in the United States. And when I was growing up, um, you know, certainly uh, 
you knew that the major publications had a had a liberal slant. Um, but so I've got hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of electronic equipment in my bag there on the bench, but I'm not afraid that someone's going to steal it when I turn my back. It's really nice being in a safe place. You could basically count on their news to be uh, reliable. In other words, you, you, you could in those days be someone who rejected the New York Times editorial line, um, but you could still um, trust that most of what it was that they were reporting was, was uh, usefully accurate. And in the same way, the, the um, it, 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 it was impossible for the uh, for the media, even if most of the media were liberal, it was impossible for them to uh, to just control the way that people think because because the, as they were competing media, like the, the, the current condition in which virtually all major media broadcast the, the same thoughts. So when I was here in Australia in the 1970s and 1980s, right, there were a lot of topless women bathing on the beach. Probably a third of women under 30 above 15 who are topless but uh, that's changed since the influx of Muslims in the 1990s so I was out here in 89 uh, there's still topless bathers galore at the beach but uh, during the 1990s and even after 2001 large influx of Muslims into Australia and uh, with that the, the end essentially of the uh, topless bathers on the beach as a, uh, 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 in order to advance a political uh, agenda. This is a new thing. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't want to claim that, uh, that uh, democracy always functions perfectly well, but uh, what we're seeing right now is a, uh, is a, a catastrophic shift from um, a, uh, a culture in which um, reporters thought that whatever, whatever party they voted for, they thought that you know, something like Hunter Biden's laptop would be. Okay, this, this isn't uh, exactly a catastrophic change. Unfortunate, not not catas- catastrophic. Uh, I swear that any one of them would want to break and want to get the lead in because corruption was simply uh, something that anybody could get a, get a Pulitzer for reporting on corruption. It didn't matter whether it was the right or the left. So, again, without without saying that it was utopian, I think that we have entered a, a period of uh, utter dysfunction in uh, the way that the media functions and uh, also other institutions at uh, the, the, uh, the, the universities, which 30 years ago we were able to tolerate. Uh, a conservative or a rightist view on the faculty or among the students, and today, recently, most places, universities simply cannot tolerate these kinds of views. And, and, and we can go on the government bureaucracy and, and so on. So we are certainly facing a a horrific crisis, and we need to talk about what, if anything, can be done to get out of it. But I think that uh, we should not exaggerate. I think it would be a mistake to exaggerate the um, the kind of influence that the kind of political system you have has on whether it works or not, because the reality. So this is Yoram Hazoni speaking on his book, What is There to Conserve? Is that, um, I think that many different kinds of political systems can be made to work well if the people are inheriting um, traditions of mutual uh, loyalty and uh, Yeah, respect for tradition, right? That's the key part of, of being conservative, right? You, you think that time-tested ways of organizing people and communities is likely to be more effective than, uh, you know, radical new innovations. And striving to make it work. And the moment that the people are inheriting uh, disloyalty and contempt for one another and for the system itself, it, it doesn't matter how beautiful and perfect it is on paper, it will still, it will just stop working, and that's what we're seeing right now. 
Yeah, and this uh, constantly striving for moral improvement, it's uh, largely a delusion, right? There are just certain inherent you know, nasty qualities to being human, and tradition usually offers us you know, more effective ways to channel them. Of, of our brethren of the, per, the, the current situation, because we remember in the past we were, obviously the past is a very uh, immoral place, or, you know, immoral place, uh, the, the yeah, that is a quintessential liberal view. The past was a very immoral place, and now we're just living through ever-increasing amounts of freedom. Present, we're constantly improving, and only in the future will actual morality be possible. And even then, you know, you're still kind of in the churning permanent revolution. So I feel if, um, with, with kind of this current perspective, is, is, is it even possible to, um, I don't know, love your brethren, you know, have, have any sort of ties to, to any sort of... So Alex Kashuda is not a particularly good uh, podcast host. She's just all over the place with her, with her questions. Is there an Australian Karen archetype? Not really. I mean, there are some Karens, Australian Karens, like American Karens, but it's not a major archetype of uh, Australian personality. Australians tend to be pretty easygoing. I don't think Karens are easygoing. But uh, Alex Kashuda just kind of meanders, right? Not exactly sharp and brief in her questions. The best questions are the shortest questions historical um, or any, making any sort of peace with your own history well we just uh, we just switched topics from democracy yeah so she's just all over the place democracy and liberalism obviously they're not they're not the same thing but democracy is, is, is an extended suffrage where uh, many more people get to participate in, uh, in uh, electing at least certain parts if not all parts of, of the government uh, liberalism is not you know it's not a system of government liberalism is a uh, is a set of ideas um, and uh, yeah, that's a great point. Liberalism is not a system of government. It's a set of ideas. It, there needs to be liberalism plus. You know, liberalism plus democracy. Liberalism plus nationalism. These passerbys look more in shape than the average fat, lazy American. I thought so too, but we're in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where the more affluent, the, the smarter people live. So they tend to be in better shape. Overall, I, I found out to my dismay... And this did not used to be true, but now Australians are, on average, just as obese as Americans, I, I think. It was not that way until maybe the last uh, 10, 20 years. So when I came to America in 1977, I was stunned at the huge number of fat people. But uh, with each passing year, it seems like uh, Australians more and more resemble Americans, though not on Sydney's eastern suburbs, where people tend to be in pretty good shape. It comes very close in its current form to being a kind of religion, um, because um, the, the, the assertion that everybody is, um, uh, that everyone is perfectly free and perfectly equal, uh, and that they only need to take on obligations that they uh, that they consent to. And you were just referring to a, to a, a third plank in, in, in a lot of liberalism, which is uh, the, the, the claim that all human beings, all that human beings need to do is think and argue, and then we'll figure all the answers to everything out just by thinking. Um, and we, we don't need any kind of inheritance or tradition to build on. This, this set of axioms, is, it, it is a kind of a religion. And uh, what it does is it, it, it undercuts um, and, and, and blots out uh, any kind of good that's inherited 
decades from the past. And, you know, a very, very dramatic example of this is uh, Thomas Jefferson, the, uh, one of the American founders who, um, who uh, was quite excessive in his liberalism and it was in many ways a, you know, a model for what we're seeing today. And, and Jefferson said that, that repeatedly that every generation is uh, related to the previous generation uh, as if it were a foreign country. He thought that you know, every 20 years you should just start from scratch and, uh, and, and make up all the, all the laws that you think are good for you. And, and, then, and then 20 years later, you'll just do it again. So when you refer to this uh, permanent revolution, um, you, you really are talking about something that is baked in. It, it is baked into liberalism. And the, the, the reason that the United States and, and Britain were able to, to survive for two or three centuries uh, without decaying is not, is, is not because uh, there were liberals, but because there were conservatives. There were large numbers of people whose focus was on maintaining inherited traditions. And that means that they thought a great deal. They, they, they thought a great deal about what you need to do in order for um, for your inherited traditions to be uh, transmitted to future generations. And all of that comes to sort of the crashing end after the Second World War, uh, which argue about why it does. But it's only after the Second World War that uh, the that, uh, to become uh, dispensable and, and are eliminated from, from you know, the school system and from public life. And, Okay, this is Yoram Hazoni speaking with Alex Kashuta. That's K-A-S-C-H-U-T-A. Lives in Romania. And I'm just going to leave it there for now. Bye-bye.